0: Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. We uh, just thank you for being together, to gather together as your people, to gather together to worship, to gather together to hear your word, to be challenged and encouraged and uplifted. Lord, may we hear what you have to say to us this day, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue to read our verse each week. I hope that you are getting this down, that you're getting this in your head, that you're remembering this, because this is key to the book of Acts. This is key to, I think, what our church is, uh, where God is leading our church. And so let us read Acts 1-8 together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have been talking about being witnesses for Jesus Christ. But an important note to make here is that to be a witness, you have had to witness something, right? To be a witness, you have to witness something. Not just read it, but be a witness to something. I mean, to be a powerful and influential witness, you have had to witness something. And so we need to witness Jesus Christ in our lives. So th- think about these questions. Are you experiencing something special in your relationship with Jesus? If so, you can be a witness to that. Are you experiencing transformation from sinner to saint? Are you experiencing the power of God at work in your life? Are you a more at peace in your life? Are you able to cast your anxiety onto God? Do people look at your life and see something in your life that you have and they don't have and they want because God is at work in your life in a way that is evident to others? These are some of the questions we should be asking ourselves regularly because if these things are happening in our life, then we can be a witness to what Christ is doing in our life. Make sense? You see, it really comes from being a Christ follower, becoming more and more like Christ. They say that the longer a couple is married, that they begin to look like each other. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's true. They call it convergence of appearance. But they've also found another interesting thing, that people often, Jules was mentioning about liking dogs, people often choose pets that look like themselves. So let me give you some examples here. Here's one. How about that? Or that one, or that one, or that one. Well, that's a little fun thing to do. But more importantly than looking like your dog or looking like your spouse is to look like Christ. We are called to look like Christ, to be Christ followers, to become more like Christ, to be more fully committed to Christ. Only then can we be witnesses for Christ in the way that we're called to be. Now, Acts chapter 15 is a very long chapter. So I encourage you this week to go home and to read the whole thing yourself. To read over it and to take it in, because I'm just going to highlight a couple of things from it. But it's really a great chapter, so please take some time this week to read the whole chapter yourself. And in fact, you should do that each week. I really encourage you to read the whole chapter each week, because we're going through whole chapters in one sermon, and there's just no way in a sermon can I deal with everything in the chapter. So each week you should go home, take, take a few verses a day and throughout the week, I read that whole chapter again. So the good news is that God has given us ways for us to grow and become more like Christ. So that we can be true Christ followers because we are becoming more and more in the image of Christ. It is not something we do to ourselves, but it is something that we have to put effort and work into. And one of the combinations of spiritual practices that God gives us to become more like Him is prayer and fasting. Now it's interesting that 11 times in the scriptures, prayer and fasting are mentioned together. And so I think that God wants us to do both prayer and fasting. Now we know a lot about prayer, but maybe you don't know as much about fasting. And so because I think it's an important spiritual practice that draws us to become more like Christ, I want to talk a little bit about fasting this morning. See, part of the challenge of fasting is that we hear all the time, eat your three meals a day, right? And maybe even a few snacks along the way, right? And we love to eat, don't we? You know, it's really wonderful that God didn't just create us to eat for nourishment. God created us to eat because we love food, right? We love to eat. We love the taste of food. You know, it's always fun for me to to talk to people, what is your favorite food? You know, and I'll say, oh, tacos is my favorite food. Right? What is your favorite food? And I... Oh, when I eat tacos, I love tacos, right? We love to eat food. And so because we love to eat food so much, the whole concept of fasting is pretty challenging, right? Give up food? What do you mean, give up food? I love food. I don't want to give up food. You know, and we're so used to not being hungry that whenever you try to fast and you get hungry, even a little bit, you're like, oh, I need food, right? It's not natural for us to fast and have those hunger pangs. And so consequently, we oftentimes don't fast, but I think this is one of the reasons why we need to fast all the more. And I'll explain that in a second. Jesus and Jesus said in Matthew 6.16, uh, read the yellow with me. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And you notice the first word? The first word isn't if. Jesus says what? When, when you fast. That to me says we need to fast. It's not exactly a command from Jesus. Not, it doesn't go under the commands of God, but it is definitely an imperative that says when you fast, Do so in a private manner so others don't know. He's not supposed to be like, oh, I'm so hungry and I'm so, oh, I'm so terrible today. I'm fasting. I'm fasting. You know, we're not supposed to be telling people that we're fasting. It's not, you know, he says, if you fast, if you do that, then your reward is basically the other person saying, oh, okay, you're fasting. Okay. Your reward, maybe they look up at you, oh, wow, you're a spiritual person, right? You're fasting. And then that's your whole reward. No, you, you miss out on the whole point of fasting if your whole point is just to let other people know you're fasting and try to get them to think that you're a more spiritual person because you're fasting. That is not the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is first to center on God, it is God ordained, it is God or initiated. It is not meant to... There's no one particular day that you have to fast. It's something that's between you and God most of the time. Sometimes you do it corporately, but most of the time, it's a private matter. It's to center on God. It's to draw close to God. It's to deepen our prayer life in God. I know that when I am fasting, I am led to pray more deeply. And in fact, I'm led to pray more often because as I go through the day... Every time I have these hunger pangs, I remember, oh yeah, I'm fasting, I need to pray. And it's a constant reminder to be in deeper prayer with the Lord. Secondly, it reveals to us the things that control us. This is a really fascinating thing about fasting. If you have a pride issue, during your time of fasting, that will start to come out. There's a way that it just comes out. Maybe you notice that you're, you're trying to do something that ma- reminds you, wait a minute, oh, that's a prideful thing, isn't it? Man, I have trouble with pride. If you have trouble with anger or jealousy or bitterness, oftentimes in your times of fasting, it will be revealed to you because in our giving up, we get greater insight into our, our spiritual struggles. Beautiful thing about fasting, which leads to another discipline, And that in fasting, we receive greater discernment. Greater discernment. In our time of fasting, it leads us to deeper prayer. And in that deeper time of prayer, we have discernment about what God has for us. What God wants to do in and through our lives. Our fasting leads us to being more open to the voice of God. To hearing God speak to us. And we get greater discernment in those times. Of fasting, I understand that God's ways are greater than my ways and that God's understanding is greater than my understanding. And I am foolish to think that I can do this on my own without God's help, without God's guidance, without God giving me insight into what He has for me to do in my life. And in those times of fasting, I get greater discernment. See, fasting strips away my need to be in control and helps me to appreciate what I have and what God has given to me. It reminds me of how feeble I am as I struggle with my hunger. In even just one day of fasting, I struggle with my hunger and realize my weakness and my great need for God. And so in Acts 13, 2-3, we read, read the yellow with me, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. One note I want to make real quick. You see, he's called Saul here. Later in the chapter, he's called Paul. We all know that that Saul was the Pharisee, right? And then he accepted Jesus, and his name was changed, which ultimately is a significant step. Now, I always thought it would be interesting if once you became a Christian, you changed your name, right? From Chris, I became Steve or something. I don't know. (laughs) The reason for that is because Saul, when you hear the word Saul, you think about the Pharisee. You think about all the things that he did. You think about the simple acts of Saul. But when you think about Paul, you think about this renewed Christian, this spirit-filled Christian, this Christian who was given a call by God. And so when he changed his name, he became this new creation that the Scripture talks about, that Paul talks about in in his writings. And we see here Barnabas and Saul, and then later you'll see Barnabas and Paul. Just a note, because as you read that chapter, you might be like, well, there's Saul here, and there's Paul here, and why are there two different names? And that's why. But anyway, they were fasting, weren't they? And as they were fasting, they received discernment that Paul or Saul and Barnabas needed to be sent off on their journey to continue to preach the gospel, to be witnesses to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. And so they heard that from the Lord And they prayed over them to to send them out. See, fasting reminds us that we need to be in control of our lives and decisions, but as we are guided by God. It is not just on our own doing. It is God guiding us. We too often allow ourselves to be controlled by our desire and our need for food, and we often end up overeating. Yes? We often often end up overeating because we don't have the self-control we need, which carries over into other parts of our life where we don't have the self-control that we need. Fasting teaches us self-control. So let me just give a brief word on uh, how to fast. Generally, when someone fasts, it's a going without food for a whole day. You drink water. You drink a lot of water, but you only drink water. That's, that's generally what a fast is. But as the saying goes, sometimes it's better to rock walk before you run. And so it might be easier for you just to start by skipping one meal in a day. And during that meal, maybe you take time to pray. During that hour that you would normally eat your food, you spend time fasting and <coughs> praying. And then maybe the next time you fast, you skip two meals. And then the time after that, you skip all the meals in the day. And you just drink a lot of water, a lot of water. Or maybe you drink water and juices to kind of supplement the water. You just drink fluids, but you don't eat food. Now, here's an important note. If you are fasting and you feel lightheaded, you feel weak, you feel sick, you need to stop your fast immediately. Because fasting is not about dealing with bad health issues, right? Now, if you feel hungry, that doesn't mean you're supposed to break your fast, okay? Oh, I'm hungry, and I'm feeling weak because I'm hungry. I need to break my fast, right? Now, you'll get used to being hungry. That's okay, the, the hunger feeling. But if you're weak, if you're, if you're feeling lightheaded, if you're not feeling quite right, then you need to break your fast. Now, here, real quick note on how to break a fast. When you're fasting and you then say, okay, now it's time to eat, your tendency will be to overeat, right? Cuz you're going to be really 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 hungry. And you're just going to eat a ton of food, right? I want some pizza, I want some tacos, I want some salad, I want some, you know you're just going and most of the time we eat unhealthily. So so we're eating bad stuff to begin with and we're breaking our fast in that way and that is not good. Eat a light meal when you break your fast and then that will be more healthy and better for you. So, that's a little bit about fasting. But as you fast, let that experience lead you to a deeper relationship with God, a deeper understanding of God's will, and a deeper desire to let God be in control of your life. Fasting will help that to happen. One of the great experiences I've had, and maybe you've had an experience like this, is you gather in a circle with other people, And you have this encouragement time. And you choose one person, and everybody encourages that one person. So each person takes their time to encourage that person, to tell them some good things about them, how God's at work at them. right? You encourage that person, and you go person by person. It's really a powerful experience. It's very humbling experience. But there is another kind of encouragement that the Bible talks about. And this encouragement is called Exhortation. Now, exhortation is one of the spiritual gifts, but it is often overlooked because in exhortation, it's the kind of encouragement that challenges you, that challenges you to be more committed to God, that challenges you to believe deeper, that challenges you in who you are called to be in God or what you are to believe in God. Maybe your belief is a little off and someone exhorts you to believe in the right way. I say this because we'll get in a moment to where Paul is asked to give a word of exhortation. And then we saw in the reading that Doug did for us that after he gives a word of exhortation, the people are very angry with him. (laughs) They did not receive that exhortation well. Now, exhortation gives a true perspective of who God is and what God's work is in people's lives and in the life of the church. An exhorter is one who holds, or challenges people to have a true perspective and understanding of who God is and how God is at work, as I said. But exhorter holds high the sovereignty of God God is in control. God needs to be in control. We need to have this understanding. We need to have this acceptance. An exhorter always is trying to get that point across, that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that God is over all. Wise counsel flows from the heart of an exhorter who is able to skillfully identify precepts and principles of God's word and challenge us to apply those principles, and precepts to our life. Exhorters regards trials as opportunity for growth. Every trial is an opportunity to grow deeper in our relationship with God, to trust God all the more, to rely on God in all things in our life. An exhorter shares biblical perspective, reminding people of God's power at work. The exhorter wants to take advantage of every opportunity to become more Christ-like. You know, that's that's an important word, isn't it? Because there's so many things in our life that we allow to take us away from focusing on God, right? We go through a challenge, and all of a sudden we're focused on the challenge, and we forget about God. An exhorter will say, no, let that challenge draw you into a deeper relationship with God, draw you into a closer trusting of God, and you will do well when you receive the Lord in all aspects of your life. So we see in uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul is going to give a word of exhortation, and he's going to divide his exhortation into four parts. The Old Testament kerygma, or the saving acts of God, the word kerygma talks about the saving acts of God. The New Testament kerygma, Some supportive biblical texts and announcement of the gospel. So first he starts with the Old Testament kerygma. He mentions, he gives us history to the people. They say, give us a word of exhortation, Paul. And Paul says, okay, let's start back in the beginning. God called his people Israel to be his people. And he talks about the patriarchs, the fathers of the people, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he talks about how they began to grow as a stronger and stronger people. And the Pharaoh saw this, uh, this growing and this strength, and so he enslaved them. And then he talks about God's saving act of delivering them out of their slavery from Egypt, and how they were in the desert, and how God was with them in the desert. And as they got to the promised land, that God helped them overcome the people of Canaan so they could live in Canaan, in the promised land. And then he talks about... The times of the judges up through the prophet Samuel. And then the giving of the first king, King Saul. And then up to King David, who is called a man after God's own heart. He gives this wonderful summary of the Old Testament. Of God's saving work, God's powerful work in the Old Testament. Remember, in exhortation, it's all about God's sovereignty and God's work. And so then he carries it into the New Testament. And he shows a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament with Jesus being in the line of David. And he talks about how God is not just a God of the past, but God is a God of the present and a God of the future, and how he continually was working even in those New Testament times. And he talks about how the the Old Covenant was was received through the law and through the prophets, but the new covenant is received through Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. And then, he says in verses 22 and 23, After removing King Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. So then he carries them into the New Testament. He talks about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. He talks about Jesus' ministry. He talks about Jesus' trial and his crucifixion and the resurrection. And he talks about the witnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection. And he's showing how Christianity is not a philosophy or a set of ethics, but it is a work of God through Jesus Christ, an act of love to his people, brought to his people so that all could be saved and all could follow him. He talks about the work of Jesus and what Jesus has done and how that is what we are to testify. The work of Jesus in and through our lives. And then he gives some um, biblical support to that. And I'll just go over that briefly to you. The first is Psalm 2:7, talking about the relationship with Jesus as the Son of God and the relationship of the Son of God with God the Father. And then he talks about Isaiah 55.3, the promises that God made to David and how those promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about Psalm 16.10, about how Jesus is the Messiah, his body would not decay, talking about his resurrection, how he'd be resurrected from the dead. And then he talks about Habakkuk 1.5, and he talks about how the work that God had done would not be believed even if people had told him. Really interesting statement that, that Saul makes there, Paul makes there. That even when someone tells someone about Jesus and the work that Jesus has done on your behalf, people don't believe. I mean, you've experienced that, right? You talk about, you talk about being a witness, being a witness to what Jesus has done in your life, what Jesus has done in this world, how Jesus is the Savior of the world. And we talk about that, and he says, that some people will not believe even if someone had told them. Once upon a time, there was an evil witch. And this evil witch wanted to control the people, and so she, she turned the land into constant winter. And no food would grow, and so the people had to rely on the evil witch for food. And in doing this, she enslaved them and had power and control over them. But one day, this powerful prince came into the land from outside of the kingdom. And he got to know the people, and he began to love the people, and he wanted to help the people and save the people. And so he went to the evil witch. He he told the witch that he would trade his life for freedom for the people. And the old witch, evil witch, agreed to this. But she wanted to do it publicly. And so the day came when he was to be killed. And in front of all the people, the evil witch killed this powerful prince. And the people were horrified at what they seen because the prince was supposed to have saved them. And yet they were watching him be killed. But then something tremendous happened. The prince came back to life. And the witch howled and shrieked at what she saw. And the prince killed the witch and saved the people and saved the land. The end. That's right. We, we clap for that, right? <laughs> You know, a good story, a compelling story, always has those kinds of aspects, in it doesn't. There's some kind of evil adversary that whenever you say, ooh, we don't like that evil adversary, and always has some hero, right? And always has some people that are oppressed in some way, and it's all about a love that is shown by the hero to the people who are in need. The story I told could easily have been the story of God and Satan and God's people. Motivated by love, God sent the Prince of Peace, Jesus, into the world to die for our sins, to save us from the coldness of sin, and to give us eternal life with God. Once upon a time, there was a Savior, Jesus, right? Who saved us. Acts 13, 38-39, Paul says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that what? Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. It was, is not by the obedience, obedience to the law, but by the free gift from God to us all that sets us free from the power of sin and gives us forgiveness of our sins and gives us Eternal life. This is the good news we are to believe, to live, and to share with others. And then he says, Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. See, this is the real exhortation that Paul is giving to them. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. God is sovereign. God is in control. God has given you a way to be saved. God has done this in his great work. Do not wonder or you will perish. Believe, he says. You know, Paul, more than anyone, knew what it was like to be a scoffer, to wonder. But then he came to believe in Jesus Christ himself, and he wondered no more. And now he was challenging others around them. You who scoff, you who wonder, you who do not believe. Believe. It is true. I have experienced it. Remember I talked about the beginning, being a witness is something we have experienced. Paul says, I have experienced, it's true. I'm being a witness to you from what I've experienced myself. And that is our story. What have you experienced in Jesus Christ that is true? What can you share with others? Believe, do not scoff, do not wonder. I have experienced it. I have tasted it. I have known it. And I want you to know it as well. And then we're told that the word of the Lord spread. But there were many who were angry, weren't they? And we read at the very end. So they, shook, uh, so they were kicked out of the city, and Paul and Barnabas shook the dust out their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And read with me. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they had been a witness, and they had seen many believe. And even though some didn't believe, they had seen many believe. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were ready to continue to be that witness. Do you want to have purpose in your life? Do you want to have meaning in your life? Let the Holy Spirit fill you and share with others what you have witnessed in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Live in this and share this with others and you will have a meaningful and purposeful life. Let us pray.